Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The pants that I have probably haven't been washed in two years. I'm supposed to look like a starving confederate at the end of the war, and I'm supposed to look ragged. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Coming up, an author who loves lady nerds of history as much as we do. Maybe even more than we do, Trisha. I really like to write about women whose lives I wish I lived. And I'm incredibly jealous of all of them. And our pal Logan Jaffe has been hanging out with Civil War nerds. All that plus your nerd confessions right here on Nerdette. Karen Abbott's most recent book is Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. I really like to write about women whose lives I wish I lived, and I'm incredibly jealous of all of them. I wish I could step back into their shoes at least for a few minutes and just experience the things they did and have the balls they did. You think of the word maverick, and it's such a male word, typically. It just conjures male heroes and important male historical figures. But I like to apply that to women. When it comes to Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, how would you explain it if you had 140 characters or less? The story of four women who risked everything for their cause and were incredibly badass while doing it. And what got you thinking about these women in the first place? Well, I was born and raised in Philadelphia and moved to Atlanta in 2001. I was down there for six years, and it was a complete culture shock. As you can imagine, I saw Confederate flags, heard jokes about the War of Northern Aggression, and just realized they're fighting the war down there still. It seeps into daily life and conversation in a way it never does up north. And the point was really driven home for me one day when I was stuck in traffic behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that said, Don't blame me. I voted for Jefferson Davis. And, you know, of course, was the president of the Confederacy. And I just started thinking about the Civil War more in detail. And my mind always goes to, well, what were the women doing? And not just any women, not the women who were darning socks and raising money for supplies, but what were the bad women doing? What were the defiant women doing? And I really just wanted to find four women who lied, wheedled, murdered, shot, drank, spied, stole, and avenged their way through the war. And I wanted to find four women who did that and hopefully succeeded on that front. It was really fascinating to research that part of the book. There were 400 women, both North and South, who disguised themselves as men and fought on either side. And it was fascinating to figure out how they got away with this. And it was mainly, I came to the conclusion, because nobody knew what a woman would look like wearing pants. People were so used to women's bodies being pushed and pulled in these exaggerated shapes with their corsets and their crinolines that the very idea of a woman wearing pants, let alone an entire army uniform, 
was so unfathomable that people would not even recognize it when it was right in front of their face. So Emma Edmonds was able to exploit this and get away with posing as a man for quite some time. I love that. So can you tell us about a couple of the other characters in this book? I guess I can't even call them characters because they're real life. (laughs) Well, they were characters, but I mean, they were real characters. Belle Boyd, who was one of my favorites, she was just comic relief to me. And she was all id. She had no filter. And she was really overt with both her opinions and her sexuality, I think, in a way that was really rare for a 17-year-old girl, and especially during that time period. You know, Sarah Palin and Miley Cyrus had a 19th century baby. It would have been Belle Boyd. She was just really out there. And she kicks things off in the beginning in July of 1861. Union forces are marching down the Shenandoah Valley, and one of them decides to raise a federal flag over her home. They invaded her hometown, and they were going to stake their claim and raise their flag on her home. And Belle decides to shoot this fellow dead, and she gets away with it. She claims self-defense, and the general in charge absolves her, and she is emboldened by this and decides to become a courier and spy for the Confederate Army and goes on to have many adventures. My second spy was Emma Edmonds. She came into the war with a secret. She had already been living as a man for two years, calling herself Private Frank Thompson. And she was sort of a heartbreaking character to me. Her father was abusive and was going to marry her off to an elderly neighbor. And she wanted none of this. She craved an adventurous life and one day decided to cut her hair, bound her breasts, and trade in her dress for a man's suit and started calling herself Frank Thompson. And she migrated to the United States and started hearing about John Brown and the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War and decided she wanted a piece of that and joined the Army and was quite brave, both on the battle and going behind enemy lines. The third spy was a Confederate spy named Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Her life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. She had lost five children in four years. She had lost her husband in a freak accident. And she had lost her access to the White House. She had been friends with high-ranking Democratic politicians for years leading up to the war and lost all of that when Lincoln and the Republicans came into power. So in the spring of 1861, when a Confederate captain wanted to operate a Confederate spy ring, and he gave her the job, and she really embraced this. And she began cultivating sources. By cultivating, I mean sleeping with, and was really sort of a notorious seductress and spent a lot of time seducing high-ranking Republicans, including Senator Henry Wilson, who was an abolitionist Republican from Massachusetts, and also Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. So you can imagine they had quite interesting pillow talk that she used to pass information along to the Confederacy. And the last spy is Elizabeth Van Lu, who was sort of the opposite of Rose Greenhouse. She was a Union spy living in the Confederate capital of Richmond, whereas Rose was a Confederate spy in Washington, D.C., And Elizabeth was a Richmond native, but she spent her time schooling in Philadelphia under the care of an abolitionist governess and brought these ideals back with her to Richmond. And it was really dangerous for her to speak openly about abolition after the war broke out. People sent her death threats. She was followed by Confederate detectives quite often. But she nevertheless stuck to her plans to operate a far-reaching espionage ring in the Confederate capital. And I think her greatest accomplishment was placing a former family slave in the Confederate White House as a spy, which is one of my favorite stories in the book. It's all just so incredible. I think one thing that I find especially fascinating, you mentioned Rose Greenhouse and that idea of cultivating spies, a.k.a. sleeping with sources. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's this really interesting aspect of 
using feminine wiles to actually empower yourself in a way that I think it's still kind of controversial these days too. There's this aspect of if you really want to be powerful, you have to just be completely masculine and not. Right. Have you thought about that much yourself? I did. And you have to look at it in the context also of, well, these women didn't have access to even act masculine. They didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have access to political discourse. They weren't included in the process at all. When you get down to it, the feminine wiles was their most potent weapon in some ways, the only one that they had. So who can blame them for using that? Who can blame them for wielding that to the greatest of their abilities? And I think that they were quite brilliant in the way they exploited people's notions of gender and exploited people's notions of the limitations of what a woman could and should be. It's sort of using their gender as a physical and psychological disguise. Physically, they're hiding messages up in their hair. They're hiding things in their hoop skirts. And psychologically, if anybody accused them of treasonous activity or devious activity, the standard response was, how dare you? I am a defenseless woman. How dare you accuse me of such things? And they didn't know how to respond to that. And it was just a brilliant way to turn the tables on their accusers and use the perceived limitations of their gender in a way that was going to advance their own cause. One thing that's really fascinating about this book is that it reminds you of how recent this history really is. But, you know, I mean, to see that there are photographs in your book, it took me a second to realize, oh, yeah, that does actually make sense. I think it was Shelby Foote who said the Civil War was what made us us. So it was really obviously the defining event in American history. And just so many firsts that came from there, including just the idea that we need to give the dead a proper burial. I mean, that came from the Civil War. Also, the way that women's roles changed. One of the fascinating aspects of that was all of the men were gone. You know, all of their husbands, their fiancés, their brothers, their cousins, all of the people who chaperoned and hovered over them their entire lives were gone. So this just was a newfound freedom that opened them up to possibility. And I think that that led to eventually after the war when women were widowed in large numbers and when their men started coming back missing limbs and weren't able to work, it just changed the role of women in society. A whole generation of women didn't expect to marry. They were okay with being spinsters. They were okay with sort of taking charge of the family in a way they hadn't before. The modernization of women, I think, the seed of it was planted in the Civil War, just fed into the fight for suffrage and all of those things snowballed from the Civil War. That narrative is pretty familiar to most of us, I think, in World War II when it comes to factories and women taking on work at that point. But I think it's really interesting to think that it really comes back to the Civil War. I agree. You know, with the Civil War marked the first time that women were really open about their political beliefs, their ideologies, and their loyalties. There were female spies during the Revolutionary War, but they didn't talk about it. And there was nobody spouting off to the papers like Rose Greenhow did about how Lincoln is evil. I mean, she was in the newspapers talking this way about the political leaders of the North. It was unprecedented. And it was really confusing to people. You know, women were always victims of war. They weren't perpetrators of war. And it was the Civil War, I think, marked the first time that people had to acknowledge that, you know, not only are women capable of treasonous and devious activity, but they're capable of executing it more deftly than men. And there was a great quote from one Lincoln official, and he said, what are we going to do with these fashionable women spies? <laughs> you know, and he just, they, it was a conundrum. They really did not know how to handle this. And I think it was the first time women felt not only comfortable speaking up, but they felt compelled and that it was their own patriotic duty to do so. I love that, too, because I feel like there's sort of a double entendre in it, because I'm sure they were fashionable themselves, but then also being a woman spy was weirdly fashionable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And also their fashion was literally vital to their spying. I think there was also even a literal component to it. And it also, it was the first time that women were acting boorish. 
And the whole idea of the Southern Bell sort of went by the wayside during the war. And I think that that also was liberating in a way. You spent five years researching this book, which is so intense. I can't even imagine spending five years on anything hardly. (laughs) Yeah. So what are your criteria when you're thinking about what your next book is going to be? What do you look for in a story? Well, it has to be people that I would be willing to live several years with. Number one, like, am I going to get bored of this person? And I don't have to like them. I just have to find them interesting. I don't care if characters are likable. I just care if they do interesting things. And all of these women fit the criteria of doing interesting things. Thanks to Karen Abbott. Her latest book is Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. It is delightful. Still to come, our pal Logan Jaffe hung out at a campfire with some Civil War reenactors. And a whole lot of nerd confessions from the night we spent at the Game of Thrones beer release party. The later the night got, the stranger the confessions. You're going to want to hear these. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. You may remember Logan Jaffe from such segments as Cornhusk Dolls. <laughs> that wasn't the crux of that segment, but we did learn that Logan went to historical reenactor summer camp as a child, where she did, among other things, make Cornhusk Dolls. She's here to tell us about five misconceptions of the Civil War. I've been nerding out about the Civil War super hard lately. I'm actually working on an interactive documentary that's set to come out in March of 2015 about what the Confederate flag means in America today. We're profiling eight to ten people from all over the country who have these personal stories and personal reasons that give them this kind of intimate relationship with the Confederate battle flag, I should say, not the Confederate flag, because we'll get into the distinctions later. But one thing I learned right off the bat about the Civil War is that the Civil War is not its only name. Like that, that is the name that you learn definitely on the northern side of the country in school. That's the textbook name for the Civil War. But working on this documentary, I met people in their 20s who learned in their textbook that the Civil War is actually called the War Between the States. The big reason for it being called the War Between the States is to, I guess, de-emphasize that there was any sort of civility here, and then to emphasize the fact that it was the Northerners who started the Civil War because they invaded the South. And that actually kind of brings me to the second name for the Civil War that I learned, which is the War of Northern Aggression. It all comes back to branding, right? It's like we're all kind of talking about the same thing. And it definitely ties back into this idea of rewriting history and who gets the rights to history. 
the North won and they won on their terms. And part of winning on their terms is emphasizing their point of view that the nation was never officially split. Number two on the list of misconceptions about the Civil War is that, you know, it's not only history buffs and like your uncle that are into this kind of thing. <laughs> My partner and I who's working on this documentary with me, Zachary Sigelko, we spent a good three days with some Confederate reenactors in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we talked to a lot of those people about why they're reenacting, why they do what they do. I'm just going to let this guy explain for you. My name's Jim Marshall. I'm from Ocean City, New Jersey. And as a profession, I'm a real estate agent. A ton of hobbies, but uh, this one's real enjoyable because it gets me away from the cell phone for a few days. At first, all I wanted to do was the battles. That was it. And then you sit in camp for one day and you say, nah, this is what it's really like. You know, at night, when everybody else is gone, you got the campfire going and you're sitting around, you're telling stories and you just relax. You wear the same shirt every day, the same hat, the same socks. The pants that I have probably haven't been washed in two years because I, I'm supposed to look like a starving Confederate at the end of the war and I'm supposed to look ragged. And if they smell me a mile away, they, 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 that's for real, you know? What's so great about that? I, I don't know. When we were four, that's what we did, right? You stayed out all night, the mosquitoes bit you, and you didn't care. You just, you're getting home all dirty, and mom said, you gotta take a bath, it's Friday night. So now we're just grown up kids. Number three is, the stars and bars is not what you think it is. So people refer to the Confederate flag, which is actually the Confederate battle flag, people refer to that as the stars and bars. It's a red flag with the blue St. Andrew's cross on it, and it has stars lining that cross, which represent the states that seceded. And that symbol of the St. Andrew's cross didn't actually pop up in the Confederacy until the second edition of the flag. And the first flag, it's called the first national flag. That's the one that's the stars and bars. It's a flag, and the top left has a circle of the stars in it. And then you have three stripes, a red, a white, and then a red. So the stars in the stars and bars, the stars are referring to the circle, and then the bars are actually referring to those three stripes on the side. But the big problem with this flag is that this was the flag right at the beginning of the Civil War. The Battle of Bull Run, or if you're looking at this from the southern perspective, Manassas, the problem with this stars and bars flag was that it looked too similar to the Union flag, the stars and stripes. People were shooting their own men, and that's obviously a problem. So after that, some folks from the Confederacy got together and decided, we really need to change this. And that's where the second national flag came into play. The second national flag is just a white flag, and then it has that St. Andrew's cross symbol in the top left corner. So that's still not even the Confederate battle flag that we see all around today. And then the third one is even different. It's like that same white with the symbol on the left and then a red stripe on the right. What we know today as the and referred to as the stars and bars in the Confederate flag, that was actually just the battle flag and was never officially used as a sign of the entire Confederate government. It was for troops. That's what we refer to today. As the Confederate flag. As the Confederate flag. Number four is that lots of words 
that we use today have Civil War origins, and tampon is one of them. I'd like to um, credit this great book that I've been reading called Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horowitz. And he had this great paragraph in this book in which he lists some of the words that came from the Civil War. There's tampon, sideburns, heavy metal, deadline, and hooker. <laughs> Those are good words. I know. They're great words. Half of them, like, apply to me directly. And, like... <laughs> um, <laughs> Which and, half? Which half, um, I would say <laughs> tampon, heavy metal, and deadline. <laughs> Probably sideburns in some way. So not hooker everyone. I just think it's a fantastic selection <laughs> of words that you would never, ever know had Civil War origins here. Tampon comes from the word tampion, I believe is how you would pronounce it, which is a plug or cover for the muzzle of a cannon or gun to keep out dust and moisture. I, I love that. <laughs> Precisely. And then you get like hooker for General Joseph Hooker and sideburns after this guy named Ambrose Burnside. Heavy metal, referred to artillery, and Deadline is a great—well, it's weird to say great because it's actually pretty terrible, but there was a boundary line at the Andersonville prison camp, which was in Georgia, and it housed troops that the South had caught, northern troops. And if you crossed this particular line, whether you were trying to escape or or doing whatever, some people would actually volunteer to cross it just because they would rather be dead— it was like a form of suicide, you would risk being shot at by Southern military who were, like, controlling the base. That's the origin of the word deadline, too. So think about that next time you have an edit. Number five, one of the big misconceptions about the Civil War is that it ended completely. And I know this is kind of a weird one. I've talked to a lot of people when I've been traveling around in the southern part of the country. And it seems like every time I mention to somebody what I'm doing here, just like small talk, everybody has something to say about the Civil War there. It's personal. I was checking into a hotel in Richmond, Virginia. Quick mention to the doorman, you know, what what this project was about. Talked to him for an hour, even more, just in the door of the hotel room. And he says, you know what? A lot of people think the Civil War had ended, but down here it's definitely not over. And it manifests in all of these really fascinating ways. And, and one way that I'm choosing to focus on that is through an examination of what the Confederate battle flag means in America today. I feel like more and more as we're approaching this 150th anniversary of Lee's surrender, I think you're going to hear more and more about those lingering effects that people never really closed up during Reconstruction that are still with us today. We are going to be eager to hear more about the Battle Flag documentary that Logan Jaffe is working on as she goes forward. And I definitely didn't know the history of the word sideburns. So thank you for that as well. (laughs) It's the least I could do. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. What's so civil about war anyway? Now it's time for homework. Now that it's officially fall, it's time for some nice fall reading. We've got a couple of reading suggestions for you, one of which is to read Spoiled Brats by Simon Rich. We'll be talking with Simon next week. The other thing you must do, because we all must do it, is read the new Harry Potter story that's coming out on Halloween. It's all about Dolores Umbridge, and she may be my favorite villain of that entire series. Not Voldemort, not 
any of the Malfoys, but Dolores Umbridge is the worst. Trisha, I think you are absolutely correct. As horrible as Voldemort was and as awful as the Malfoys are, Dolores Umbridge was definitely the most hated character in those books. So silly of me, but it sounds as if you're questioning my authority in my own classroom. Minerva. Not at all, Dolores. Merely your medieval methods. I am sorry, dear. But to question my practices is to question the ministry, and by extension, the minister himself. I am a tolerant woman, but the one thing I will not stand for is disloyalty. I'm especially excited about this story coming out on Halloween because it gives me something exciting to look forward to because I'm not necessarily like a super costume person. Well, you do own a banana suit. (laughs) How much clearer can I say there's always money in the banana stand? I actually have two banana suits for some reason. Unfortunately, they're both for humans. I really need to get one for the corgi. Clearly. So your banana suit obviously is a reference to something you're very nerdy about, Arrested Development, but we want to see pictures from all of the rest of you if you're wearing a delightfully nerdy Halloween costume. If you're going as the notorious RGB, which is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, easy costume, guys. Robe, some bling, be awesome the whole night. Doily, you really got to have the doily on the robe to make that one work. But any costume that you're wearing that you're proud of because it's nerdy and awesome on Halloween, Snap a photo, share with us on Twitter at Nerdette Podcast, or tag us on Instagram at Nerdette Podcast there as well. We want to see your nerdy Halloween costumes. Shout out to my dear friends Rich and Jen, who are going to be Luke and Lorelai. I can't wait to see it. An ice rink? How did this happen? Jack Frost brought it. Does he look like Luke Danes? A little, not as handsome. You made me an ice rink. Sit the rink in a box. You set it up, you fill it with water, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Can they please have someone with them who's the troubadour just following them around? Can I be a banana troubadour? Or you can just walk around saying la 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 la. <laughs> Maybe you need to come to town, Trisha. <laughs> now it's time to hear from you. Nerd confessions. These are very special nerd confessions. I collected these live at the Game of Thrones Oma Gang beer release party in Chicago. And the more of the Game of Thrones beer that they drank, the stranger their confessions were. This is just a taste. We'll have more for you soon, but this is just a taste. Trisha, I am so excited to hear these. I still play my copy of Zork Grand Inquisitor that came with my, when I first purchased Windows 93. How does it even still function? I run it in compatibility mode. I still play it like every year. It's great. I love it. My name's Justin McMath, and I may not have been at my nerdiest, but I recently had a bachelor party in South Carolina. And before the bachelor party, I made sure that one of my groomsmen, at least, could bring a full set of the Settlers of Catan so that we could play board games every minute we weren't doing anything else. My first foray into the nerd community would probably be when I was around 12, 13, and I started going on AOL forums, role-playing as an elf, among other races from Middle Earth, we always pretended to party and smoke South Farthing, and I was 12 and had no idea what I was talking about. My name is Kelsey, and I probably think about Iron Man more than I think about anything else at any given time on any given day. 
Um, I'm actually no more than anyone else I've ever met about Iron Man, including people who work at Marvel. I started reading it with my dad. We would go to like this magazine store called Shinders back home in Minneapolis, and we would just like go in there, and I'd buy Star Wars comic books. He's like, you should read real comic books. And I was like, okay, but Star Wars is real. And he's like, no, let's, let me get you something cool. And he read Iron Man, so he gave me Iron Man. And since I was like five years old, I've been reading Iron Man comics. I think I have every issue ever written. What's one fact about Iron Man that you think most people don't know that you really love? I think a lot of people forget that he was engaged prior to becoming Iron Man. So he started out engaged and actually came back from, you know, whatever they update it to. It's Afghanistan now. It was Vietnam originally. He broke up with her to give her a better life because once he decided he was going to be Iron Man and he had this chest plate that he had to wear all the time, he was like, this is too much of a burden for you, called it off, and then she ended up getting married and having kids with someone else. And they stayed friends, and it was, like, really nice. And all these people who think he's a womanizer because of the movies, he's actually, like, really good to women and gave her a life that he thought would be better than being stuck with him. Thanks to all the nerds who sat down and gave their nerd confessions live. You can call and give yours. 312-600-5638. Tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags, welcome. Call us and leave your nerd confession at 312-600-5638. Or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We love voicemails. Thanks to Karen Abbott and Logan Jaffe for being on the show this week. And thanks to you for listening. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the left side of the homepage. Talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast. Like us on Facebook. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dassault, Patrick Burns, and Iris Lynn. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our home stations are WBEZ and W. CQS. Thanks for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous, like the excellent Nicole Titus did on iTunes. We really appreciate all the stars, the retweets, the shares. It helps us spread the good word about Nerdette. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or who works for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme is New Old Toys by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.